And so Psalm 126 is another song of ascent that Jesus would have sung as he was a little boy and a young man and an adult making his way up to Jerusalem multiple times a year for the festivals and the feasts. Um, so it's another precious psalm. And the reason I picked this one, there's several reasons that we'll go through um, as we go through it, but one of them is if we understand that hope is this long, patient waiting, if that's what hope is, if that's what we've been called to. Again, let's talk about this word waiting. So I know like when we tend to think of the word waiting, we think about a waiting room or waiting in line. Waiting is, it often has this connotation of something that is being done to me and I'm passive in it. So I I just have to get through it because it's this wait, this period of inactivity. But that's not actually how scripture talks about the posture of a soul that's waiting on the Lord. Waiting within scripture is always very active. Even if the person is being called to sit in something, they are not doing nothing is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) So there's an activity happening. And this psalm does a really good job of laying out for us what to do while we wait. And so looking at this psalm and asking this psalm to help us understand what does it look like to wait on the Lord in hope as we believe the promises of God, as we are waiting for him to show up in our lives, what do we do? And so we're going to really look at this practically um, because the reality of life is you and I can have great knowledge and understanding, but if when we walk out the doors, we don't know how to live this out, then I, it's been a little bit of wasted knowledge because the reality of life is God transforms our minds in order to be able to transform our hearts and our lives. Um, that's the goal of um, our time together in scripture. So we're going to look at Psalm 126. It's a nice, short, little, sweet psalm. It's divided into two parts. And the first half of the psalm, we're going to look at um, how the people of God remember God's miraculous blessings toward them. They remember a, a time where God fulfilled his promises to them. And the second half of the song instructs our heart on what to do when we're not living in that season, when we're living in a season of waiting, of expectant hope that God will show up again. What do our hearts do while we wait? So that's how we're going to look at this song. Um, So I will read it and pray for us, and then we will get started. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O God, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall bring home with shouts of joy, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let me pray for us. God, we do ask that you would teach our hearts that you would train us how to wait expectantly on you and that you would teach us what it looks like to wait in hope on you to fulfill your promises to us. We thank you that we know we can trust your promises to be true. So just please help our hearts know how to wait on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have the first three verses of this Psalm, Psalm 126, are a time when Israel is looking back on when God had been faithful to them, when he had kept a promise to them. So it's a hope remembered. Um, And we talked about this earlier in our other two sessions. The fate of um, Jonah was the fate of forgetting. He had forgotten who his God was. 
And so his way back to God was the way of remembering. We talked in our last session about how we can't remember alone. We need other people who will sing of God's past faithfulness to us to remind our hearts of the ways that God has kept his promises to us in the past and to our people in the past. And so we're going to spend this first little part talking through verses one through three, where the people of God are collectively remembering together a time when God restored their fortunes. And we don't, because there's no tag along with Psalm 126, we don't exactly know when the psalm was written and what fortunes we're talking about being restored. But if we look back on the history of Israel, we know that multiple times God entered into their stories and he redeemed them from famine or plague or their enemies. Um, This could have been written by the exiles who returned um, and who came back and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. We don't know, but we do know that whatever happened... It had clearly been done by God because his people recite his goodness to them over and over again. It was um, salvation had clearly come from God and they're undone by his goodness to them. And it says here um, in at the end of verse one, he said, it says we were like those who dream. It was as if God had given them not just what they asked for, but the deep longings of their hearts, the dreams that they may not have even expressed to him, he had given them. And the effect is that they were overcome with joy. There's this this infectious joy. Their mouths are filled with laughter and shouts of joy. And there's a parallel passage to this in Deuteronomy um, chapter 30, where Moses talks to his people about there will be a time when you will be under God's discipline and things will be taken from you. But don't be sad because God will restore your fortunes. And one of the things that Psalm um, 126 shows us is what that looks like to everyone else. There's shouts of joy, there's singing, there's laughter. Deuteronomy 30 actually tells us what happens in the heart of God's people. Because as Moses is talking through um, with them what it will look like when God restores their fortunes and has compassion on them. He says that something interesting will happen to you on that day. The law of God will be written on your heart. So nobody will have to tell his brother or sister, you should obey the Lord. You should love the Lord because you'll want to. The law of God will be impressed upon your heart, written on your heart in such a way that you're going to want to joyfully obey. And so it shows us um, that as their mouths are filled with laughter and their hearts are obedient to God, there's just this outpouring of praise. And I think you probably have experienced that in the past where God has entered into your story and rescued and redeemed you in some miraculous way that you know could have only come from him. And nobody has to call you on Sunday morning and say, you should probably go to church today, or you should probably give up your tithe and your offerings, or you should volunteer, or you should love your neighbor. It's when you look at what God has done for you, you think, I can't help but want to worship him. I can't help but want to obey him. You know what it's like to have the law of God written on your heart and to feel this incredible gratitude towards God. And we see in, um, in verse 2 that even the pagan nations around them look at them and say, the Lord has done great things for them. It becomes this testimony to all the nations that surround them that Israel's God has come through. And he has done a mighty thing for them. And his people respond with joy and laughter and obedience. And they're so excited to belong to him. And so it's a testimony to the nations. And this is a picture of spiritual renewal. God moves and he acts and he changes and he rescues and he saves us. 
And our response is that what we know in our head takes root in our hearts and we live these lives of joyful obedience before God. And we want to read our Bibles and we want to pray and we want to be in church community and we want to sing to each other of the glories of our God. And this is the cycle that we are meant to go through when we have spiritual renewal. Our joy becomes contagious. It leads other people to want to come to know our God too. And had this psalm ended in verse 3, it would have been precious. But we would not have picked it for a retreat on hope. Because here's the reality of our life. You and I live through verses 1 through 3 some of the time. But we cycle in and out of it. And I love that this psalm names that for us. It says, this is going to be a part of your story. And you can remember when you've had the spiritual renewal in the past. But take heart, child of God, because you will not always live here. And so the rest of the psalm is actually what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about. What do we do when we find ourselves in verses 4 through 6? When we are people who are waiting on God to do it again, to show up again, to renew us again, to be faithful to us again, to keep his promises to us again. What do we do with our hearts in that space? And so I want us to really look at verses 4 through 6 with the rest of our time. So verses 1 through 3 are a hope remembered. Verses 4 through three, four through 6 are all of us living in anticipation that God will do good work in us again. And so remember that we've talked about hope being this long, patient waiting. And verses four through six really show us what goes on in the heart of the believer when we're called to wait. What are we called to do? And again, waiting is not a passive thing in scripture. We are called to be very active even as we wait. And so this hope, this psalm will unfold for us what it looks like to wait on God. So the psalmist gives us two images um, in verses four through six. And I'm going to hit those really quickly, and then we're going to talk about them. Um, So he talks about how um, what what we are longing for, we are longing to be like streams in the Negev, and as a farmer who goes out sowing his seed. So we all have a pretty good idea, even if you didn't grow up in a rural area, You know what it looks like for a farmer to sow seeds. But I'm sure that when we talk about streams in the Negev, unless you are just an amazing geography student, (laughs) you probably are thinking, it sounds wet. But other than that, I don't really understand what that means. Streams in the the Negev were a very unusual phenomenon in um, the life of the people of Israel. So the Negev is an area in southern Judah, and it's a desert most of the year. But every once in a while, when the snow melts or there's rain on the mountains, the mountains flow down water and these, this valley of the Negev is flooded. And overnight, within a few days, this lush garden springs up in the valley that was once a desert. And so the psalmist is saying spiritual renewal looks like a lush garden that comes up overnight. And it also looks like a farmer sowing seed. And what's interesting, I really, if you ever study, if you want to study the Psalms, uh, Derek Kidner's commentary is the best, hands down, I think. Um, And I love how he talks about these two images because he says they're not two kinds of spiritual renewal. He's not, the psalmist is not saying, well, for some of you, when God shows up, it's going to be like a lush garden overnight and you're just going to be amazed and astounded. But for some of you, it's going to be really hard and you're going to sow seed your whole life. So he's not saying it's two kinds of spiritual renewal. What Kidner talks about is that it's actually two ways of looking at the same event. So let me read to you what he says. He says, the two images of renewal are not only striking, they're complementary. The first of them is all suddenness, a sheer gift from heaven. The second is slow 
and Artemis, with man allotted a crucial part to play in it. And so these two images being butted up next to one another, this is a technique used all throughout scripture. The author wants us to think about the two things together. And so the psalmist is saying, when spiritual renewal comes, it will feel like it's happened overnight. But then you'll look back over your life and realize God has been working with you to sow the seeds so the seeds would be there so that when the water came, the garden would spring up. So both are true. It feels all sudden and a gift from heaven. But really, in reality, we are called to work our way through this with the Lord, that as we sorrow before him, we're actually laying the seed that God will one day come and water and his beautiful garden will spring up within us. And so I want us to actually look at what does that look like, really? What does this sowing of seed, what does this patient waiting look like? Well, it looks like while we wait, we worship, we pray, we work. We obey, we hope, we look. We've already talked about in Psalm 42 and 43, we don't try to run away from God. In our sorrow, we recognize that God has placed me here on this plot of land, and I am to work it for his glory. And what does that look like? What does it look like for a farmer to sow his tears? So let's look at that. Um, And I love this imagery, mostly because my grandfather was a farmer. And so I, I remember growing up, even as a little kid, he had a a farm in Jackson, Mississippi, like going out with him and seeing like all the farmland and all the care um, that goes into a farmer who sows his seed. And a farmer sows his seed into the ground expecting it will produce a harvest. Uh, My grandfather actually lost his farm because multiple years in a row, there was no harvest. There was drought. There were all kinds of things that he was outside of his control, but no farmer goes and puts his seed in the ground and thinks, well, Let's see what happens. Maybe something will spring up. Maybe it won't. A farmer sows his seed because he expects a harvest. And so as we live a life before God as a farmer sowing seed, we're to sow into God, into the character and nature of our God expectantly, expecting a harvest of righteousness to be produced. And so I want us to actually talk about what is the seed that we're sowing. So if you look at verse six, you'll see those, or verse five, let's start in verse five. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What is the farmer sowing? He's sowing his own tears into the ground, and he's placing his tears into the ground, and he's saying, one day you're going to be so much more than just tears. You're going to produce a harvest of righteousness. And so we want to be this farmer We want to be women who go over the plot that God has given us and weep and sow our tears into the ground, expecting that our tears won't have the last word, that they're not just going to stay tears, but as we sow them into the ground, into the character and nature of our God, they will one day produce a harvest of righteousness for us. And so let's look at what we can learn from this farmer who is sowing his seed. Um, If you have an opportunity to listen to a sermon on this. I really love Tim Keller's sermon um, called Praying Our Tears. And one of the things that he talks about in that sermon, is he says there's two ways we can waste our tears in life. And there's two ways a farmer can waste his seed. So if a farmer goes into the middle of the ground, the middle of the field, and he takes a big bag of seed and he just dumps it on the ground, and then he like rolls around in it a little bit, and he says, okay, good luck. I hope that produces something. What is that going to actually produce? Nothing. That seed is going to rot and it's not going to produce anything life-giving. And so Keller talks about how 
Oftentimes that's how we deal with our tears and our pain. We just go and dump it and we wallow in self-pity and we expect that this pain defines us and it is the thing that everyone comes to know us by. I have to be honest, of the two of these ways of being, I tend to be a wallower. I want everyone to know how unhappy I am and how hurt I am and how sad I am and I want your pity and I wanna pity myself. I like to wallow in my own tears. And this is one way that we can waste our sorrow. God did not give us our sorrow so we could feel sorry for ourselves and wallow in self-pity. That's not the purpose of our tears. But there's another extreme, another way that we can waste our tears. And that's as if the farmer left the bag of seed in the barn and he pretended it didn't exist. And you and I can waste our sorrow by belittling it and pretending it's not there, by not addressing our feelings. That's why we spent the whole first session talking about acknowledging our real feelings before real God and bringing true hurt to him and allowing him to tell us the truth about what we are going through and what we are feeling. We're not called to wallow in our pain and our tears, but we're also not called to ignore it. If you have sorrow in your life, it's been given to you for a purpose and to waste it would be a shame. And so we are called to be women who steward our tears well, who understand that if a painful season has come into our lives, it is because God has great purposes for us in there and because he intends to produce something really beautiful in us because of this season. And that one day we'll be able to turn around and equip and encourage and feed others from the harvest of righteousness that was produced in our lives during a season of sorrow. And so we are called not to ignore our pain or dump our pain, but to sow our sorrow in such a way that it produces life for us. Here is something interesting that I don't know that we all acknowledge. Pain in and of itself doesn't really produce anything. It's what we do with our pain that matters. It's who we place our pain with that matters. Where do you go with your pain? Pain in and of itself is not gonna make you a strong woman. What doesn't kill you doesn't always make you stronger. <laughs> so sometimes it destroys you. <laughs> and so you do have to take your pain and steward it well and steward it within the character and nature of God. So let's talk about that specifically because I actually want us to talk about what did that look like in the man of sorrows? Jesus was familiar with grief. He understood pain. He did not wallow in self-pity, although of all of us who have lived, Jesus had the right to feel sorry for himself more than anybody else, but he didn't. He didn't wallow in self-pity, but he also didn't ignore his pain. Jesus cries a lot in the Gospels. When you look at him, you recognize this is a man who gets it. He understands it, and he understands it on an even deeper level than I do. The pain of Christ has also had a purpose, had a purpose for us. And so, when we go through painful experiences in life, we have this beautiful window and opportunity opened before us. It's a place where we can go and commune with our Savior, where we can look at him and say, I see that you know this, that you're familiar with this pain too. I'm familiar with it now. Can we hold hands together in this space? Can you show me your heart here? Because remember, we talked about how the desire of our heart is that we would see God's face in our pain and in our sorrows. So suffering becomes an opportunity to meet with Jesus, to sit with him, to hold his hands, to trace his lines, the scars on his flesh, and to say, I know this pain now. I know betrayal. You knew betrayal. 
I know what it's like to be rejected. You knew what it was like to be rejected. I know what it's like for my own father and mother to forsake me. So did you, Jesus. There is nothing you will go through in life that Jesus has not already experienced. Hebrews tells us he is a great high priest who understands your weakness and your sorrows and your pain like nobody else. And it's beautiful to walk through the gospels and watch the way that Jesus interacts with people in pain. I love all of the places where Jesus is moving along and someone cries out to him and he stops and he turns. And oftentimes the gospels say he stopped and he looked. Because how many times has your heart been in pain and people just walk right past you? And you think, does anybody see me? Does anybody know what this feels like? Your Savior will never walk past you. We have so many places in the gospel where we see Jesus stop and look and kneel down and touch people's faces and rub mud on their eyes and wash away their tears. Jesus was a physical God who loved to touch hurting people and stop for them and wait for them because he was a man of sorrows. He knew what it was like to hurt. If you look at the life of Jesus, which no, we haven't really talked about my book, but let me give you just a tiny backstory. Um, so I grew up in a Christian home. My dad's a pastor. So I grew up knowing all the right things. I had a head full of knowledge, but a heart that was really afraid of God. And if I'm being honest, I wanted to live in his house, but not really have a lot to do with him. <laughs> and so I kept my distance from God. And it wasn't until I was 30 years old that I realized, man, all of this anxiety and depression and fear that feels like it surrounds me all the time, I'm pretty sure that at the root of it is that I'm afraid of who God really is. And I'm not sure I can actually trust him. And so I embarked on a journey that the Lord took me on that was just such a beautiful journey. I spent a year studying the gospel of John with the express purpose of getting to know who God really is. Because I had grown up with a lot of ideas about him, but I didn't really know his heart. And I misunderstood a lot of the things that he had done. <laughs> and so I, when you're a pastor's kid, pain, it, your front door is like a revolving door for pain. People are walking in and out of your house in pain all the time. And I didn't know how to process the pain that God's people go through. And so I loved studying in the Gospel of John because I sat there for, it took me 450 hours to study the whole book. But for 450 hours, I sat face to face with Jesus. And in his kindness, he kept saying, I know what it's like to be you. And I experience these things because I love you. And I don't want you to be afraid anymore. And I want you to know what your father's really like. And I want you to feel comfortable crawling up into his lap and leaning on his chest because he sent me to come and get you, baby girl. And I want you to know him. And that was such a beautiful journey because for the first time in my whole life, and I was already on staff at a church and trying to raise kids in the name of Jesus. <laughs> but for the first time in my whole life, I felt safe and seen and known. And a huge part of that was by sitting with a suffering savior. Because when you actually study the gospels, and you read them chronologically, we often talk about the suffering of Christ and we relegate it to like his last 48 hours. But that child suffered from the moment he was born. Jesus was a man who understood what it was like to never have a place in this world, not even in his own home, because people were always talking about the peculiar circumstances of his birth. And we don't know a lot about his childhood growing up, 
But what we do know is that when he meets those kids that he grew up with in the temple one day, they call him a bastard in front of everybody. And they're 30-year-old men. And if that's how they treated him like he, when they were grown-ups, what do you think they were like when they were children? Children are cruel. They can't help themselves some of the time, but <laughs> they're mean. Jesus experienced suffering even at a young age. I think it's incredible. One of my favorite stories about Jesus is when he's being dedicated at the temple and an old man holds him up and says, this child is for the rise and the fall of many. When he hands him back to his mama, he says, and loving him will be like a sword that pierces your soul. The life of Jesus was a hard life from the get-go. He understood sorrow and he was intimate with it and he understood injustice and he understood what it was like to be treated unfairly. He understood what it was like to go to his friends and say, this is the worst night of my life. And what I really want is for you to just stay awake. I just want you to be here with me and three times to go back and find them asleep. Jesus knew what it was like to be alone and forsaken, to be beaten for things he had never done, to be accused, to be talked about, to be betrayed by the ones he loved the most. Even his own mama at one point in the scriptures comes to him and says, you're embarrassing all of us by the things that you're saying. Would you just come home? What would that have been like for Jesus, for his own mother to not believe in him at times? Jesus really has experienced everything you and I will ever go through. And he did that so that when you suffer and you go to him, and you hold out your hands and you say, I'm really hurting. He can come to you and hold your hands and say, oh, I know. I know because I've been here too. I want you to know that you're not alone. I am with you and you've got my face. And if you can say along with David, even though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. In those moments, the Lord will take you in and he will hold you close. And he will say, I am here for you. Even if everybody else leaves you, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you because you are mine and I'm yours. And for all of eternity, we'll be face to face together. This is what we have as a resource. And so when we suffer, this is how we sow our tears. We don't try to suffer by ourselves. <laughs> we go to him and we lay it out before him. Even if it's hard to verbalize, even if you don't want to look at it, Laying it out before him and letting him be kind to you in those places. Letting him meet with you. Letting him see your face snotty and tears and swollen as it is. <laughs> and letting you see his face too. This is what God offers to us through his son. And suffering with Christ, sowing our tears into his character and nature, it protects us. Because suffering with Christ has many, many benefits. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but I'm going to tell you my three favorites. <laughs> and so there's three things that for me, I really have come to be really precious in suffering with Christ instead of suffering away from Christ. So suffering with him, suffering with Jesus and before his face takes the fear out of suffering because every one of us, has a guilty conscience. We've all done things we know we shouldn't have done. And there 
is an accuser out there who likes to tell us, hey, you know what? This pain that came into your life, it's because God's mad at you. It's because God really doesn't want you to be a part of his family. It's because he's ashamed of you. It's because he's punishing you. We have somebody called the accuser of the brethren who loves to throw stuff at us when we're in pain. But when we suffer with Christ and we sit face to face with the one who has already suffered for us, we can look at him and say, I know that that can't be true because why would the father punish you for my sin and then turn around and punish me too? He's not an unjust God. Jesus has already accepted our punishment. And so you and I, when we suffer, our father is not an angry judge. He's a tender companion who says, you come here and you crawl up in my lap and you suffer right next to me and you know that I am here with you because I'm safe. Jesus has made God's heart safe for us because there is no condemnation left for you, child of God. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So suffering with Christ takes the fear out of suffering. Suffering with Christ instead of away from him helps us be patient in our suffering. Because I don't know about you, but I feel like halfway through really hard seasons, I'm like, okay, Lord, I get it. I got it. I got the lesson. We can move on. We can move me into a better place now. And I can often get impatient with God when I suffer. And he knows that about us because he looks at us and says, your frame is just dust. I know that you don't understand my ways. And so suffering along with Christ helps us be patient. Now, I did not really understand this until I studied the Gospel of John. And one of my favorite, favorite passages, which has its own chapter in the book, and I I hope that you get a chance to really sit with this passage at some point. But John chapter 12, Jesus, it's famous. It's Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die. And he also knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that's exactly why he's going to Bethany is to, he tells his disciples, we're going to go wake our brother up. Our brother is dead. We're going to go wake him up. And so Jesus gets there. And, you know, if I were Jesus, I would be like, I would see all the people mourning and sad. People from all over had come to Bethany because this was a famous family. And so there's people everywhere. And this is like a moment for Jesus. And if it were me, I would kind of like push my sleeves up and be like, hey, everybody, watch what I'm about to do. And do this amazing thing. But that's not actually what Jesus does. It's such a peculiar passage. Jesus walks into that town and it says he sees people crying. He sees the mourners. And what it tells us in the actual Greek, it says that we have it as the shortest verse in the Bible. It says Jesus wept. Um, My mom was my Bible study teacher when I was a little kid. And you got a Skittle for every Bible verse that you said. So I always said that one. Jesus wept. And I got a Skittle. Because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. And it's so badly translated. Because in the Greek, it actually means Jesus threw his head back and he wailed. And it's, it's a word that usually is only used to describe what people feel after a natural disaster, after an earthquake and there's terrible disaster all around you. That's the response. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why does he throw his head back and wail? Because Lazarus's pain meant something to him. It was his pain too. Jesus feels, God feels everything you feel. And I love that story because for a big feeler like myself, I can often feel like God leaves me in pain a little bit too long. (laughs) But here's the thing. If God feels my pain even more deeply than I do, he is never going to leave me there too long because that means he'd have to leave himself in pain too long. And he's not going to do that. 
Our God feels with us and for us and even more deeply than we feel. And so if in his wisdom that I don't always understand, God leaves me in a painful situation longer than I'd like to be there, I can trust his wailing heart because I know that he's grieving this even deeper than I'm grieving it. And he's feeling on my behalf because my pain is his pain. Psalm 56, three says he keeps, oh, 56, eight says he keeps every single tear you've ever cried in a bottle, every single one of them, because they're precious to him and he's not gonna waste one. And so he is going to be faithful to us in our sorrows. And I love that the end of our story ends like this. You and I are going to cry our ways through this life. But the end of our story is all the same. Jesus Christ will walk among us and he will put his nail-scarred hand on your face and he will dry your tears. That's how precious they are to him. They end up in glory at the end and he wipes away every tear from your eyes. I can't wait to hear what he says while he does it. Maybe he won't say anything. Maybe it'll just be the look of knowing between us and all the tears that are left will come out and he'll wipe them away with a hand that is compassionate and understanding because it bears the marks of pain. Jesus understands what it's like to be us and so that helps us be patient in our suffering. And the last thing that suffering with Christ instead of suffering away from him is knowing that I now get to suffer with an eye towards a goal. Suffering has a purpose. Jesus suffered with an eye fixed on his goal. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And the beautiful imagery there is it's like a woman in labor, a woman in labor who fixes her eyes on the joy that is set before her. She knows she is bringing life into this world. Jesus actually talks about that on the night that he's betrayed. He talks about his suffering as if it's a woman giving labor. And he says, just like that woman bears that pain, knowing she's bringing something beautiful into this world, so too did Jesus fix his eyes on the joy set before him and he endured and he did not give up. And I, I have sat in the suffering of Christ for many hours. Um, and to me, the part that's most precious to me is the moment in which Jesus received 39 lashes. Because when they came to arrest Jesus and his disciples tried to defend him, what did Jesus say? He said, put your sword back in your sheath. If I utter one word, a legion of angels will come and rescue me. Jesus knew that at any moment that he decided he didn't want to be there anymore, God would rescue him. And I love for my own heart as a child who often felt unwanted, and unchosen. To me, 39 times when that terrible whip hit his back, Jesus fixed his eyes on my face and he chose me. Because he could have said at any moment, enough, finished, she's not worth it, I can't do this anymore. But he didn't, he stayed. 39 times Jesus picked me out of the crowd. And 39 times he picked you too. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus? What did he gain that he did not already have in glory? It was you. You were the child of God that the father set his heart on and said, we have to have her. And the beautiful brother that we have said, then I'll go get her. And he chose you again and again and again his entire life. And he chose you again and again and again and throughout his entire suffering. You are chosen, not forsaken.
You are beloved. And in the moments when we're in pain, there are times when I close my eyes just so I can hear the sound of the whip and know I'm chosen and my father loves me and my Jesus stayed for me. So if he's asking me to stay in this moment a little bit longer than I'd like, I will stay for him. I will fix my eyes on his face and I will run the race that he set before me. Even if I have to crawl my way across the finish line, I'm going to get there because he's waiting for me at the end. And I want to live a life where I can look at him and say, you are everything to me because you made me everything for you. And that's what we've been called to in our suffering. It's to rise a little bit above as we can. And we've already talked about how sometimes it's just wave after wave after wave. Sometimes it's like a dry and weary land. I know that this is hard. I know because I've been living it for years. I get it. But I also know the benefit of living this way that we will suffer in this life. So we can either suffer with him and in his presence and next to his heart, or we can try it on our own. But one of those is better than the other. (laughs) And so what do we fix our eyes on? What do we focus on in order to finish the race? And so focusing on Christ in our sorrow and pain, this is sowing our tears. We are investing our sorrows in him. We are looking at his hands and saying, I'm going to put this in your hands because I believe this is going to become something a lot better than what it actually is right now. This pain, this sorrow, these tears in your hands, they can become something really great. On my own, I can't do anything with this. I, I've already mentioned I have a 17-year-old and a 16-year-old, and the last two years have just really been heartbreaking with them um, for many, many reasons. Um, having you know COVID as your high school experience is not helpful, but they've also just had their own things going on. And I can't tell you how there are nights when I go to bed and I literally picture myself putting my children into his hands and saying, I can't do anything. I'm a woman who goes and travels all the time to talk to people about hope, but my own children feel hopeless right now. And I don't know what to say and I don't know what to do. And so I just have to keep entrusting them into the hands of a good father and into the hands of a faithful son and entrusting them into the power of the Holy Spirit because that's all I've got. And I'm at the end of what I can do. I've done a lot, probably more than I should have. (laughs) But I do believe that this stuff is true. And I believe that investing our sorrows into the heart of a faithful God will produce something so much better than pain in the end. Because he's promised that to us. And he's lived that life before us as a pattern. I love when Peter talks about the suffering of Jesus. He says, he talks about it as if Jesus dotted out lines for us to trace. That's when Peter writes in his epistles about the suffering of Jesus. He says, he has left us a pattern by which we can follow. And the Greek word he used was this little tracing board that little kindergartners would use to trace out the lines. Jesus has left you a pattern that you can take your little crayon and follow in his stead. And you know his heart for you because you see it on full display in the Gospels. And so we invest our sorrows because we know that our sorrows are precious to God. And we know we can trust him with them, that he will make them something so much greater than just sorrow in the end. And that's the hope that we have, that there is nothing that will come to us in this sad world that is outside of our Father's rule and reign and tender care. 
And that is what we take to the bank day after day after day while we invest our pain and our sorrows and our tears in him, knowing that he will produce a harvest of righteousness in us. And that that harvest is not just for us alone. That's why we talked last time about Psalm 121. It's so that one day you can turn and sing to your sister or your brother and say, I know him to be faithful and true because I've seen him be faithful in my own life. And let me sing to you of who he is. And let me encourage you on the road. I don't know all your stories. In fact, I only know one of your stories and only a little bit. (laughs) But I know that you know pain because you can't be a human being living on this side of eternity and have gotten through this unscathed. I know you know pain, but I hope you also know your Savior. And I hope you know God's heart for you. And I pray that in this, in my small way that you have been able to see in these Psalms, that you have great reason to be very confident in your hope in God and that you too can say to your soul, why are you downcast? Hope in God, for we will all praise him. That's how our story ends, but we'll praise him here too. He is our salvation and our God. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus. You are a prize that is worth living for, worth suffering for, worth running towards. God, I pray that you would help us fix our eyes on your precious face and that for the joy set before us, we would endure our crosses, whatever it is that you've called us to suffer through, God. I pray that we would suffer well, that we would steward our tears well and know that you are faithful and you are good. And I pray that we would be able to encourage one another on the road ahead as we trust you and as we sing of your faithfulness to one another. We ask all these things in the great name of Jesus, our older brother. Amen.